I can't control God. It's a risk you're taking, you know? I can't control the wind or God. So then it's, then I will call out the tour director, but I'm just saying that if the wind blows, there's nothing I can do about that. I can't control God. Talk to him. Did you know, James, that Venus Williams cannot control God? Talk to him. <laughs> the The finger pointing to the heavens, just, it was too much. It was so perfect. Well, it was that and then the strut afterward. <laughs> Stomping the runway. It so reminded me of, like, 16-year-old Venus at Wimbledon, really upset at a chair umpire. He can hear it, she can hear it, they can hear it, everybody can hear it, but you. <laughs> that was from her first round match in Parma. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But this is the body serve, and I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. I think that's what they call a cold open. Mm. You delay the title card. <laughs> What's been going on? Well, we have, uh, we've all of a sudden become more prolific. We released an episode a week ago today, and we're back already. We're, mm -hmm. we're truly getting our shit together. And you know why? Because it wasn't together. I thought that Roland Garros started next week. And so I was like, okay, I guess we'll squeeze in an episode two in one week. Uh, but no, no, no. It starts uh, about 12 days from now. No, man, that's why I said we'd probably end up doing five weeks in a row. Yeah, I have clearly not been paying close enough attention to the calendar. But uh, as they say, here we are. We are in Rome. We were in Rome. Rome <laughs> happened. And your champions were the same champions who won the French Open in the fall of 2020. Igor Sviantek blitzing through Roland Garros last year blitzed through Karolina Pliskova in this final to the tune of a double bagel and Rafael Nadal turned back Novak Djokovic in three sets to win the men's title. Iga's was a shocking performance. Not that she won, and not that she won easily, but it was a dominance on the level of Steffi Graf against Zverevo. Even more dominant. That was the comparison that came to mind for a lot of folks. You don't often see that kind of scoreline in a final. I think you could make the argument that the 88 final with Graf and Zverevo was more of a mismatch than this was. Yes. Because Pliskova had come into this final making the Rome final three years in a row. She was the defending finalist. She had won the title in 2019. And even though Pliskova has struggled for form for quite a while now, clearly... This was an event, a surface, that she feels comfortable on. Yeah, she had a lot of points to defend. She won the title the last time it was in May, and it's under its normal circumstances. And like you said, she hasn't been playing particularly well this year, and every week it's like, whoa, when is she going to fire Sasha? Da -da -da. Apparently, his job looks to be safe for at least a week longer. Mm -hmm. He, uh... 
released a statement on Instagram or Twitter, one of them, maybe both, where he thanked everybody under the sun, including the haters. Mm-hmm. He uh, continues to do uh, the the most. Mm-hmm. And uh, that message was endorsed by Pliskova with a string of emojis. So it seems as though that camp is is secure for now. <laughs> and uh, Pliskova, to her credit, didn't seem to be bothered about this result. And if one is not bothered by this result, then one can then make the assumption that that person is just unbotherable. I, yeah. I mean, Rome is actually the site of the famous lumberjacking incident, but she has really turned her Roman life around since then. Mere hours after losing in the final, she posts photos from Piazza Navona and captioned, And what? Just another Sunday. Okay, ma'am. With All right. a styling, kneeling, glamorous fashion moment in front of Piazza Navona. <laughs> and I have to say... I have not always understood or appreciated Carolina's sense of humor, but in this case, uh, I have to give her props, really, because what else can you do? Like, you were beaten so thoroughly, and, I mean, going against a player like that who makes you look practically silly on court, what can you say? Except for, well, uh, tomorrow is another day. Mm -hmm. We've heard and we've been told many times that such and such is just how Carolina is. That she's very blunt, she's very dry, she's funny. And while we may not have necessarily been able to understand all of that up until now, I think this moment is a pretty good encapsulation of that. Mm-hmm. If you don't get Carolina, no, you're just never going to get her. <laughs> right. And I think a lot of people, ourselves included, have always been trying to read into her humor and try to understand it and i think the the theme is what you see is what you get like she is she's just lays it all out there also the reaction to this result reminds me of how simona halep has dealt with a lot of high profile losses in the past and her response which i've i've thought of as being very healthy is kind of how pliskova goes about things too And so I appreciate that side of it. At the end of the day, not to be cliche about it, but this is just tennis, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And she she played really well this week. Like, she turned around her form in a big way Mm -hmm. up until the final. Like, this was not going to stop her from living her life. We've all been through varying degrees of lockdowns over the past year and a half. And given the opportunity to go sightsee in a historic city like Rome, she was going to take it. Double bagel be damned. <laughs> and so I, I tip my hat to Miss Pliskova. But what can you say about Iga Sviantek? She's the defending champion Roland Garros and won it in such a dominating fashion. She had one pretty difficult match here in which she saved a match point against Krejcikova. And then... I mean, to give that performance in the final is just must be um, a bit terrifying to the rest of the field going into the French Open. She's peaking at the right time. She didn't spend too much time on court. And she has this way of making the opposing player look unprepared. Uh, You know, she just lines up these shots and it, it appears as if her opponent is walking to them. She has this way of 
making it look so easy while not really being fully aware of what she can do. Because <laughs> you know it's not easy. And you so know the, the, combi- the combination of those two things, if I'm a tennis player, that strikes fear into me when I play Iga Sriantek because I don't think she knows how good she can be yet. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've seen how good she can be yet. Because she's not, uh, you know, she's not six foot two. She's not extremely muscular. Sometimes it feels like these shots come out of nowhere. Like she's going to kill you when you're not prepared for it. When you feel like she's going to go in the other direction. I mean, she's still pretty tall. She is. I think she's like 5'11", which is, is tall. Mm. Um, but like you've said a lot before, you know, looking at a player like Camila Georgie, for example, and wondering where does the power come from? Her timing and her muscle memory just must be so impeccable. She also hits with a lot of topspin. Mm-hmm. She, she can vary her spins on the surface. And that's where the comparison to Nadal comes from with Sviantek. Yes. She just has a lot more potent variety on this surface than most people do. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot to be said about the final itself, except for some beautiful shot making from Iga. She was forced to play two matches on Saturday against Svitolina, beat her in straight sets, then against Coco Goff in the semis, won the first set in a tiebreak, and then won 6-3 in second, four sets over Saturday, and then she comes out on Sunday and does this. Now, why, why do they have to play two matches on Saturday? Obviously because of the rain. Rome doesn't have a roof. Roofs are very expensive. But uh, why did the women's number one player have to play in the rain and the men's number one player did not. I saw this was a question that a lot of folks were asking, and I don't have the answer. The immediate inclination is to think that there's some untoward sexism going on there, which I'm not here to discount. Right. Not here to say for certain, but also Um, not here to discount. I also know that in some situations, the player's can come to some kind of agreement with themselves to keep playing to a certain point before the umpire says, look, listen, this is just not in, this is not on. Mm -hmm. And we know (laughs) on the men's side, there's one particular player who's not about that rain life on clay, especially when they're behind. If we're to follow the historical nature of things. I don't know if that's where you're going with that. The historical nature as in like two days prior? (laughs) Yes, the context is we're coming off a tantrum from Novak screaming at the umpire about when are we going to get off this court because it's raining. That was in a different match. And then during that quarterfinal, and then his match against Tsitsipas was suspended and then postponed the following day. But Ash Barty and Coco Goff were going on court. Ash did not seem pleased to be on court. And she also apparently was carrying this arm injury that's been recurrent the conditions with such a heavy ball certainly didn't help, and she ended up pulling out against Coco Goff. I imagine to just save any possibility of missing the next major. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an injury that she's familiar with. Yes. So she kind of knows how to treat it, what to look out for, and in those conditions, feeling that it was cusping to become <laughs> a problem for her, she made the decision that she wasn't going to jeopardize her Roland Garros chances. Right. And it's smart because she's in a very good position for this clay season. She's played exceedingly well over the past few weeks. So why push it 
for Rome. Like, especially when in the condition you're in, you probably won't win anyway. Mm -hmm. So that meant that Coco Goff advanced. Cue the people being big mad about Coco Goff being lucky. Like, folks. (laughs) Retirements happen all the time. And look how she got there. And what are the things that she achieved this week that would discount those claims of being lucky she <laughs> took she took Sviantek to a 7-6 set she played her very tight in that semi-final she also beat Sabalenka she beat Arena Sabalenka week right. to week who had just won Madrid week to week the most consistent player in tour this year with somebody who's able to present a ferocious game to blow anybody off the court that's not nothing she beat Maria Sakkari. She beat Putintseva in the first round. And in the meantime, she is also playing doubles, reaching the quarters mm-hmm. with McNally. She cracks the top 30 for the first time. And we were getting a sense now of Coco Gauff being able to put some things together. We still don't know what top flight best sustained tennis from Coco Gauff looks like. But... We know the serve has been an ongoing issue, serving double-digit, double-faults in multiple matches, something that she hasn't been able to rely on in her career to date, and she seemed to work that out in Rome, something that she made a concerted effort to work on in the last few weeks, where her team, they deduced that it wasn't a technical issue, that it was all mental. And so she was just on court, in practice, hitting serve after serve after serve, simulating, according to her, simulating tough match situations in practice to be able to then rely on that in a match. And she was able to do it. Yeah, the serve is getting back on track. She hit 13 double faults in Charleston versus Jabour, 12 versus Pliskova in Madrid, and in Rome, kept it to under five. It was cleaned up you, you talked about how much work went into it, but it seemed like overnight she was able to clean up these double faults. And I like just watching a player put these pieces of her game together slowly and methodically, right? I don't need her to win a major right now. I'd love to see her build up a game that can last. My perspective on Coco Goff right now is I'm staying far away. Mm. When she does good stuff, we'll talk about it on this show. But you will not hear us. Talking bad about Coco Goff on the show, we do not want to be part of this echo chamber that happens when prodigies arise. Yeah, there's this impatience about people like Felix and Coco and some others, probably Grigor in another life, that is just not super interesting for me to contribute more to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, players don't always reach the potential we want them to reach. Coco is a totally different case from any of those men that you could mention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people who showed immense promise and were talking about the next whoever. The next whoever, fine. I'm talking about actual legit prodigies. Mm. That's what we're Mm. dealing with here with Coco Goff. Those men, apologies to those men, but they were not that. (laughs) Okay, fine, fine, fine. Petra Martic is finally getting something going on clay after reaching uh, the quarterfinals in 2019 in Paris. She beat Shelby Rogers, Podoroska, who was the semifinalist last year at the French Open, 
who, you know, she beat Serena, obviously, in the first match. Uh, and Martic also beat Pegula, who's been incredibly consistent this year. Martic is somebody who has such clean lines and a beautiful strokes to me on a tennis court. Mm. I enjoy watching her play. So this is particularly pleasing to me to see her come back, especially at this time of year where she is most comfortable on clay. Yeah. Simona Halep, we were speculating about what form she would be in, uh, and she suffered a really unfortunate injury in Rome that has to, I have to imagine, it threatens or has ended her hopes in Roland Garros. I don't think that we've heard definitively yet that she's out of Roland Garros, but I'm I'm assuming that that's the case. She tore a calf muscle. Mm-hmm. And with Halep's injury and Barty's precaution dealing with an existing injury, two of the top faves for the French Open on the women's side are either, in Halep's case, out of the picture or dealt a little bit of a blow. Because Ash was leveling up. One final note on Sviantec before we move on to the men. At the start of the week, it looked like, even without a deep run, Garbina Muguruza would finally return to the WTA top 10. You look at the rankings and there are folks who are languishing in the 10 to 20 range who have been playing top 10 ball for a long time. And chief among those is Muguruza. And so I I had a, a sense of, well, finally, a sense of relief, almost, because there are a lot of folks in the top 10 who just have not been performing or not performing consistently. <laughs> right. Some Former, some of them haven't even played, right? Bianca is still in there on the strength of points from 2019. Mm-hmm. Serena plays very seldom. Azarenka had that hardcourt run at the end of last year. She's still number 16. Sakari has been playing really well, number 18. And so I thought that this was going to be the time for Muguruza to finally make that jump, to overcome the frozen rankings. It, it, I mean, we know who she is and what she can do, but it's, it's not nothing to be able to call yourself a top 10 player again. It's kind of a, annoying long term as it's been to be having these tough run of 16 matches to be like, well, she's not a top 10 player, but we know what Garbina could do. You know, at a, <laughs> at a certain point, you want to see the ranking match, the name and the the pedigree, right? Right. right. But Ms. had other plans. That's the bottom line. <laughs> yes, she's finally in the top 10 at number nine. Mm-hmm. She's always felt uh, so much better than her ranking. But I mean, off the clay in the past few months, it's not like she's been a dominant player, right? She, mm-hmm. You do have to do things week in and week out to maintain that high ranking. Right, but 2,000 of those points come from one tournament. Right. Like... Almost half. Yeah. You know. In that time, and it's been, what, eight months now? Eight, nine months? She has been one of the top ten players in the world. Mm -hmm. So while Garbinia didn't achieve it this week, somebody else who is also deserving and should be in the top ten did. But, again, what is deserving, right? We've talked about this on the men's side because a certain player is always fetching about not being one or two slots higher than he is. The you know, the COVID adjustments to the rankings have, uh, I'm sure, taken a lot of agonizing discussions 
behind a lot of arguments about which points should stay on and which shouldn't. And this is what we have right now because of the pandemic. For one, you're referencing Alexander Zverev, who was already a top 10 player and was kvetching about one or two spots. Exactly. We don't know him. Well, you said his situation. name. I thought I think it's pretty clear who I was talking about. I think at this point, since we've had to have another set of recalculations to how the rankings are going to go going forward, now is the time to actually feel a little bit aggrieved about it, if you want, provided you actually have been playing that level. Like, I think you can actually make a claim to deserving this at this point. <laughs> okay, all right. Because everybody's been playing, and the people who haven't been playing haven't been doing so because of injury. Right. Now, let's move on to the men in Rome. We got the 50-something uh, incarnation of the djokovic Nadal rivalry, mm-hmm. the most prolific, the most, uh, the most in terms of quantity. That's mm. for sure of men's rivalries in history, uh, at least on the ATP level. Mm. Uh, it is, it's definitely the most something. It's, for me, it's not always the most attractive or entertaining matches. I don't love the matchup, uh, but a lot of people do. I think it's gotten a lot more interesting in recent years, in the last couple of years, Whereas previously, I wasn't that interested in it. Mm. I think once Nadal was able to play that semifinal against Djokovic, although he lost it, I think that reinvigorated something in this rivalry. You're talking about 2019 Wimbledon? Yes. Okay. With any great long-term rivalry, there are ebbs and flows. It's not a linear thing. Right. It's not like, mm-hmm. well, they'll win this week, they'll win next week, and they go back and forth for 20 years. A lot of times, if you look at the, the head-to-heads, you'll have Chrissy dominating at the start. You'll have Martina from like 82 to 86 winning the majority of those. Mm-hmm. Like there's a distinct period of time, often extended, where one of these great players has found something, has figured something out, and the other person has to go and wheel and come again. And especially on clay, for a while there, it it seemed like Djokovic was nipping on Nadal's heels. Mm -hmm. Like he could absolutely handle him, no question, on hard court. That hasn't been up for debate in many years. Right. Rafa hasn't beat him on a hard court since 2013. Mm Mm-hmm. And on top of that, Novak was making great strides to figuring out Nadal and Clay. That seems to have been stunted a bit. And on top of that, in the last couple of years, we had that great match that they played at Wimbledon. So I think that has brought a lot more equilibrium to their head-to-head and also made it more interesting for everybody involved who doesn't want to see one or the other just run away with it all the time. Mm. Novak has become such an incredible fast court player. He's won Wimbledon five times and that got better and better as his career went on. And I think as that happened, it's not like inversely proportionate, but I think his performance on clay has become less inspired, like less interesting to watch. He's a bit more passive. Not that, I mean, he's still the second best clay player, I think. Except maybe you know maybe Dominic Team, but he's still up there on clay, 
you could see him winning Roland Garros if there was a blip in Nadal's quality, you know? Mm. But uh, for me, this match this past Sunday was actually really interesting. I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't always the best quality. Uh, sometimes they were both playing at a very high level together. Sometimes they weren't. But <laughs> there was there was more mental intrigue than I expected. Yeah, you're not always going to get both players playing at their peak for three full sets. That's unrealistic. The net effect, I think the overall takeaway is that it was a, a very high quality match with lots yeah. of chess moves <laughs> right. within the three sets. The thing about Djokovic on clay and especially against Nadal now is that I think he's lost a little bit of confidence. Yeah. I think we discount how much that plays into the psyche of a tennis player, no matter how imperious they are on other surfaces, against other players, when something starts to just get in there and just woodpecker away, you know, <laughs> it it can fester. And I can't imagine that the Rome 2019 bagel first set helped. I can't imagine that the 2020 French Open first set bagel helped. Mm-hmm. Like there's... A lot of collateral accumulating damage. <laughs> sure, yeah. It compounds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The you know he's lost to Dominic Team on big in big tournaments on clay, but Novak has beaten it all what seven times on clay and, uh, you know, often in very important matches, and came super super close to beating him in a Roland Garros final. The takeaway here for Nadal is that. He did what needed to be done (laughs) for his confidence, for his preparation in his attempt to break the all-time Grand Slam record to win his 21st Grand Slam title. This entire spring clay season has been an exercise in repetition, in getting matches under his belt, in playing better from one match to another. He had that dip against Shapovalov in the third round here in Rome, where he did not play as well as he did in his opener against Yannick Sinner. But he was able to build on that. That w- that didn't deter the incremental progress that he'd made this spring. Right. Both Rome champions saved two match points in the round of 16, on the way to winning the title. Nadal's draw was very tough. He could have lost any of these matches this week, with maybe the exception of Opelka. Well, you never know, right? If you, you can't, if you can't break that serve, then you are screwed. If you end up playing two tiebreaks, that could have been that. Mm-hmm. But he drew Yannick Sinner in the first match, which is, I mean, that's not an easy first match in Rome, in Yannick's home country. Rafa was hitting 51% of first serves. I mean, he won in straight sets, but you need to clean that up. It was a competitive, enthralling match from the ground. I really enjoyed watching that one. The Shapovalov match, uh, the night train just derailed. Oh, it was so close, too. I mean, two match points against Rafa Nadal. Like, oh, that match was scary. And then, you know, a rematch against... That guy who won Madrid, Rafa won in straight sets this time. Talk about 
a moment that's most pleasing to us in our podcasting <laughs> mm-hmm. careers. You know, a no drama straight sets win against that dude. Beats Opelka four and four. And then in the final, it's an extremely competitive first set, which Rafa wins seven to five. And then where did he go? What happened? Novak upped his quality, but Rafa, I mean, that was a little bit of a mental, uh, you know, a bit of a letdown. In it's the not surprising. Set. He no. had, oh, he no. had chances to break and go up in the second set, and he didn't. And Djokovic was able to turn that into some momentum. That type of stuff can flip on a switch so quickly. Mm-hmm. The impressive part was after losing that second set 6-1 to then come back, save break points in the third set, and then in effect just run away with the match. Clearly he had been working on the serve because it's been a problem through the clay season. By the final, his first serve percentage was up to 75%. The backhand was doing a lot of damage on the return because the forehand was less reliable than it's been. I don't know if other folks noticed this, but it seemed to me that if there was one area of trepidation in Nadal's game in that final was hitting down the line on both wings. Yeah, and I should clarify, he had like a boatload of forehand winners, Mm. but there, there were plenty of errors as well. It seemed to me that there were times that it seemed where full throttle Nadal would go down the line on the forehand, definitely on the backhand. And he just didn't do it. Yeah. It yeah. was so infrequent that there was a point late in the third set, I believe, where Nadal actually wrong-footed Djokovic by hitting a, a fairly innocuous backhand down the line. It had a lot of top spin, mm-hmm. wasn't hit particularly very hard, a fairly routine rally ball. But because Nadal hadn't been doing that as a pattern throughout this match, maybe that was by design. Yeah. Because you have to come up with th- different patterns when you when you played somebody like 57 times, mm-hmm. right? But in that moment, because he hadn't done it so much in that match, it, it wrong-footed Djokovic. He just assumed the backhand cross was coming. Yeah. And there were times when Rafa would return a ball so short. And it's just an easy put away for Novak. And Novak was using the drop shot very effectively with Rafa really far behind the baseline. The drop shot, you'll remember, famously did not work in the Roland Garros final. And here it did for a long stretch. Mr. Djokovic had a few words for the next gen. That was so funny. He's <laughs> in his speech, which he spoke in Italian. His Italian is very impressive. You clocked it right away because you understand <laughs> Ital- said, Italian pretty well. He said, il next gen siamo noi, which means... the. We are the next gen, or the next gen is us, me, Roger, and Rafa. And then he joked and said, you know, Signore Pietrangeli is next gen too. (laughs) But he's saying, yeah, we've been asked about next gen incessantly over the past five years. And guess who's still here? God, it has to be more than five at this point, right? It's been going... I don't even know. The prediction of this changing of the guard has been going on for... A shocking time. Oh, sure. Probably 10 years. But the official branding of Next Gen has been, what, like half a decade or something? I think, with all due respect to one of the three GOATs, there's really only two GOATs right now who are playing at a level to really thwart these young people. Mm. Because, 
Novak can quip about this, but these next-gen guys have made strides. They a have. lot of them are yep. playing really well in certain spots. Mm-hmm. They've won Masters 1000 tournaments. And the majority of them, save for maybe a five-set match on grass, would beat Federer in his current state. Well, right. And we don't know. It was, know we've seen him on clay, but... It was a deferential thing. Oh, yeah. It was very yeah. respectful to Federer. But my point in saying that is that for the last couple of years, these two men, I mean, they've been pretty much trading slams back and forth, alternating mm. with what uh, team being the exception at the U.S. Open last year. Yeah. We'll talk about the other parts of the tournament quickly. Um, Lorenzo Zonigo. Wow. Okay. Beat Dominic Team in three sets. Beats Andre Rublev. Pushes Novak to three sets uh, on the same day he beat Rublev. He played like five and a half hours. Yeah, yeah. With an intermission. <laughs> in effect, <laughs> right, an intermission. Right. It was like a Wagner opera. It was that long. Listen, his week was beyond impressive. No Italian man had made the semifinals of this event since like 2007 mm. or something like that. And nobody had won it. Since Panata, right? In like 40 30, years? 40 years. It's, <laughs> yeah. So once he got into deep three-set matches against these players who are so much better than him on paper, mm-hmm. I mean, the Dominic team match, hell of a match, enthralling. This tournament produced some of the best Masters 1000 tennis on the men's side in a long time. And he was front and center. Lorenzo Sonego was front and center of making this happen. Yeah. Pushing... Andre Rublev to three sets as well. Imagine taking out team on clay, taking out Rublev in three sets, somebody who's been the most consistent player on the men's side, and then having to come back a couple hours later and play Novak Djokovic, save match points in that second set, and win that tiebreak. A 90-minute second set. After playing all that tennis, (laughs) you find yourself in a 90-minute second set with Novak Djokovic, and you're able to pull it out. That was really impressive. And serving Karate Kid teas while doing it. <laughs> I was obsessed with how much he looked like Ralph Macchio in the Karate mm-hmm. Kid. What that had been. Mm-hmm. It's the face as well. Riley Opelka seems to have gotten the Venus Williams boost. <laughs> she was out gallivanting around Rome with Riley, going to the Vatican Museums, having gluten-free... V, like vegan pastries in the city riley is really into art mm-hmm. like he's an appreciator of the arts and i don't know i think venus should take credit for this bit of mojo he got during rome meanwhile some of y'all were being super messy on the internets <laughs> talking about how venus loves herself some young white men what you know i'm not going to comment uh because of <laughs> <laughs> because I'm white and I'm a man, I'm just not going to comment on Venus's choices at all. So, um, yeah, point is, you do you. Some of y'all were speculating that this was a date date. Right, and who knows? Like, Venus does exactly what she wants all of the time. That is her brand. I wonder how that got set up, how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, if it were a date... I presume one or both of them would want to keep it secretive for at least Mm. a while. And they were out here posting it on social media 
and Riley was out here talking about it to yeah. to press afterwards. I'm, so I'm saying, as you know, Venus does literally whatever she wants. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for Grigor Dimitrov because he is like William's family, and it was his birthday this past week, and I didn't see any pictures with him and Venus. Yeah. Throw the guy a bone. Well, he was gone mm. from the tournament pretty quickly. Yeah. So maybe that had something to do with it. These courts in Rome, they're always a mess. They're kind of famous for this. There are very often dead spots or holes in the clay. This time it was about the lines. They are nailed down to the court. And some of them were not nailed down securely enough. So Rafa tripped over a line multiple times. And in the final, he tripped over a sideline and he's getting up and he's screaming. He had tripped over while hitting a winner. Right. He tosses his racket, which is great instinct, protecting himself from the fall. And he gets up and he sort of screams and makes this gesture that convinces the commentators that he's celebrating winning the point. No, actually, he was screaming mad about the line situation and then goes over to the umpire to scream a little bit. I think both things were true in that instant. I think his <laughs> his instinct after seeing the winner was like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on the ground again. <laughs> exactly. So it, it, the transference from elation to anger was a, was 0 to 60 in like a millisecond. Yeah. It's one of the angriest outbursts I've seen from him on a tennis court. And it was directed at Carlos, but it's not Carlos's fault, right? Mm. He doesn't design and, and make the courts. But it's crazy. Like, this is one of the biggest tournaments of the season. It's been around for many, many decades. You need to fix this shit. And these are the things that a player's union should be addressing. Health and safety. It's like the most basic health and safety regulations. Is your workplace safe for you to work in? Right? Are there advertising okay, so ballers? how would that look? How would that look? That means that you have a union. You then have negotiations whereby... You have a health and safety inspector who is knowledgeable about what a safe clay court looks like. And they will then go and approve the site before the tournament is held and then make sure that they make changes before the tournament happens. Why not? Right. What is the ATP doing if not ensuring that the the courts are up to the standards of professional tennis, that they're safe to play on? Clearly, like that's not being done now. A union has leverage. That That is the key strength of a union, is that it has leverage. It has bargaining power. They can say, we're not going to play on this. Sweetie, I get it. Yeah. I was okay. just like trying to get you to expand. Okay. I, I'm not the one who doesn't get it. Right. I just, I really get mad about this stuff because it seems very basic. And it seems like, to me, if you're trying to create a player's association or player's union, this is... This is an easy win, right? This is a success that you can hang your hat on. Mm-hmm. Saying, join join our union. Look what we did. We stopped Rafa Nadal from injuring himself before the French Open on Rome's courts. We made work a safer place to work. We talk about the need for a union a lot on this show. I just wanted you to be a little bit more specific mm, okay. as to how in this instance, a union would be able to cre- actually create Right, safer right. working conditions and what that what the minutia of that would look mm-hmm. like. And to be honest, I don't exactly know. In a, a regular union, in a more traditional workplace, this is something you would probably discuss in bargaining and it would go in the collective agreement. 
the establishment of a, a workplace health and safety committee or something. This is clearly not a regular workplace, so there are probably other mechanisms that they can go through here. But, but, this, but is, why not? this is a problem that can be solved. It's mm. not, this is not splitting the atom. Why not have a committee? Like a committee of yeah. five to ten people who are responsible for making sure that the courts are up to scratch. Right, right. <laughs> so that that's the end of Rome. I will end the Rome segment with the only Italian that I know. Tutti a tavola a mangiare. How was that? <laughs> that was great. That that's, is, that's Lydia's slogan. Yeah, that's Lydia Bastianich. I watch her. I love her. I adore her. And you know what That's it means, right? That's the only cooking show that I watch. It mm-hmm. means everybody comes to the table to eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's how she ends every show. I and cooked a chicken cacciatore in quarantine because I watched her do it. You, of course, would not eat it. No, there's like tomatoes and stuff in it. I was Peppers. so mad because having been with you for all these years, what, 14 plus years now, and having eaten out, you always suggest... When we go to Italian restaurants with your parents and what have you, what's good on the menu, what I might like. Never once, never once did you suggest that I have a cacciatore, even though you know that that would be right up my alley. Okay, I... In effect, an Italian chicken stew, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Why did you not do that? I, that is unforgivable honestly, for me. I've never had it in my life. My Italian-American family doesn't make cacciatore, and it's not something I would ever voluntarily eat, so uh, I that's was, why. I was so mad. I was so mad when I learned <laughs> that. Now, we're going to talk about this coming week in tennis. Speaking of food, the WTA is in a new tournament in Parma, famous for, obviously, Parmesan, Parmesan cheese, cheese oh, wow. and Parma ham. We also had fresh, actual Parmesan cheese in the house for the first time this week. Wow, I mean... Because I made a lasagna. It felt expensive. It was expensive. It felt opulent. It was the most expensive cheese in that (laughs) lasagna. Yes, yes. Let me tell you. Parma is famous for their food. uh, But the players are here to rev up for Roland Garros because we have an extra week now with nothing for them to do. Yeah, so this was an add-on tournament. It's a new tournament. All these players across Europe right now are looking for extra opportunities to play, especially with this extra week on the schedule. It's a bonus. Right. And I think the net effect of that, and we'll talk about that on our preview episode, I think that there are so many players that are going to be as prepared or as best prepared for the French Open as they ever have been. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody's in Europe. They're looking for an extra tournament to play because they don't have to play the week before Roland Garros in order to get more more reps in. So we're in Parma in Belgrade on the WTA side. Next week is Strasbourg. On the ATP, we've got Lyon and Geneva. I mean, the draw in Lyon is crazy. We Team and Tsitsipas are the headliners there. And next week on the men's, Belgrade 2. Because, well, it's actually Belgrade 3, but it's the second men's tournament in Belgrade and Parma. The men are having a Parmesan as well. Uh, Right. (laughs) In Parma, the headliners obviously were these wild cards for Venus and Serena Williams. They got the wild cards and the sisters Williams have now exited Parma as of today. (laughs) 
In her first match, Serena beat number 512, 17-year-old Lisa Pigato in her very first main draw match. I watched this. It's probably the latest I've been up in a long time. Because I, yes. I was... Um, oh, for those of you who want an update about Vince, here you go. <laughs> Vince caught some kind of stomach bug that had him excreting. Uh, yeah, you can fill in the blanks there. Um, quite a bit. Quite, and quite frequently. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was up all night essentially doing... I was a night nurse. <laughs> I was a night cook. Because at a certain point, I was like, well, he can't be eating his regular food. I'm going to make him some chicken and rice at 4 a.m. for when he has to eat tomorrow. (laughs) And so once you got up to work, then I went to bed. Mm. So I saw all of Serena's match and then the most of the first set of Venus's match against... Fave, her fave, Shmidlova. Shmidlova. Venus came back uh, and won that first set 7-5, I believe. Mm -hmm. I went to bed when she was down 5-2. She won five games in a row to win that first set 7-5, eventually losing the last two sets 2-6-2-6. She was up a break to start the third set, and it just didn't happen. Mm -hmm. She couldn't control Shmidlova. She could not control the wind, nor God. The double false were a problem. The forehand was firing. Serena played Katerina Siniakova today, who you'll know is a very accomplished doubles player, multiple major winner in doubles. Nobody to take lightly. I don't think Serena took it lightly, but she, you know, the serve wasn't reliable enough. She had a few too many double faults. Career high number 31, two WTA titles. This is not a scrub. Siniakova is not a scrub. No, no, no. the discourse surrounding this match as being... The, the end of Serena Williams by certain segments on Twitter, it really has become an uninhabitable space. <laughs> like, were you not here when she lost to Sepalova and then Cornet three times in a row? That was years ago. Bottom line is, fine, Serena didn't win this match. Fine, she didn't play as well as she or you would have liked. The bottom line is, it's not the French Open. She got two more matches under her belt. That in itself is a departure from Serena's typical preparation well, for a slam these days. Right. I would have preferred her to get more match practice, but here we are. She's trying things differently. She lost early in Rome and was like, well, I need to do something different. Yeah. Patrick tweeted, change of plans. We're taking a wild card. You know, we're doing, we're trying different things toward this goal of winning another Grand Slam, winning 24. Like, it's she's 39 years old, turning 40. This is not business as usual. And the idea that Serena is out here losing to a scrub is just rude as fuck, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. Roger Federer made his comeback at the same time. Their matches were on at the same time. I understand the tennis channel cut away from Serena, based on what I saw on Twitter. Uh, Roger played Pablo Andujar, who is 35 years old. I, I didn't see the match. Apparently there were stretches of very fine play from Roger, but overall just a bit rusty, which is totally to be expected. In Parma, in her pre-tournament press, Venus Williams told a reporter that her favorite pasta dish is cacio e pepe, <laughs> which is one of your favorites. Yes, a Roman specialty. It has very few ingredients, a whole lot of black pepper and a hard cheese and pasta. And really that's it. 
throwback to that time, I made cacio e pepe here. And then I also put, I think, spinach and pancetta in it. <laughs> and I tweeted about it saying, oh, this is this is my my take. My I know it's not cacio e pepe, but this is what I did with it. And boy, did oh, I get roasted. Gr- oh, the girls were mad. They were mad. Authenticity. Let's save that for another episode. The we'll have food, a whole episode about authenticity. The food traditionalists. <laughs> I'll say the the simplicity of cacio e pepe is beautiful. Like it's it's wonderful as it is. But if you add something else because you like it, that's fine. That's really okay. The pretension surrounding pasta. It's far too for much. me is unfathomable. <laughs> like we're literally talking about pasta. That's the same damn dough in different shapes and textures. <laughs> like, learn how to cook a stew and get the flavors right. Okay? Like, oh, okay. Now, I want you to take it away with this next segment. We had a listener, I believe it was Dennis, reach out to us about Sabalenka and whether or not she's, quote-unquote, problematic after our last episode. And it's something that you've had on our agenda for a while. We just haven't really felt it was the right time or that we were knowledgeable enough to talk about it yet. So now in this segment, we're going to go in on Miss Arena for a little well, bit. Well, I think we're just going to talk about what we've been able to find out. It, th- this has, of course, sort of been bubbling for a while. People have accused her of being a supporter of Lukashenko, who is the president of Belarus, and considered to be an authoritarian by most Western countries. There, Some new evidence came out, and, you know, some stories translated from the original Russian that I've been trying to get through. If you didn't know, Belarus had a presidential election last year. In August, the incumbent president, Alexander Lukashenko, won for the sixth time with supposedly 80% of the vote. Now, Lukashenko has been president since 1994, and only one of his elections has been deemed free and fair by Western countries. So he is now not considered the official leader of Belarus by the EU and the United States because... The election was uh, of questionable integrity, shall we say. The opposition leader, I really, I cannot pronounce this name, so I don't want to... Svetlana Sihanouskaya? Right. So the opposition leader who lost the election was detained in jail for seven hours. After she filed an official complaint, her campaign chief of staff was also detained. The government said it was it was an error. They were released. But... These massive protests erupted in Belarus. They were pretty brutally repressed by the police. Thousands were arrested. They were using tear gas and rubber bullets. And, well, much like they do in the United States. But that's another day. You know, the actions by the police and the government were criticized around the world. And so while this is all going on, Arina Sabalenka is posting, like, makeup photos on Instagram. And one particularly riled her fans. And so a lot of the comments under this Instagram post were, how dare you post about this frivolous thing when these historical, horrible things are happening in our country? At this time, she had already met with Lukashenko at least once, maybe a couple times, based on her tennis results. So, like, she's met the guy. Like mm-hmm. she, It's not like she's completely unaware of what's going on in her home country. So she sniped back at a few of these comments, and they're still there. She said to one person, karma does exist, that's why you're a nobody. And so many of her fans were commenting and saying, well, we we just can't support you anymore because of how nasty you're being. 
She apologized, but part of the apology was this. Quote, what targeted harassment? And you want level-headed people to be with you? And do you really think that you're allowed to decide for me which side I'm on? To insult me and the people who refuse to take part in your alleged fight for justice? Or do you think what you write to me are peaceful statements? And she went on to say that she avoids politics. She doesn't wade into that stuff. So the apology was not really an apology. Tamani Cariel tweeted an article from back in December from a Belarusian source that was talking about this letter that was written in support of Lukashenko that was supposedly signed by a bunch of athletes. And this letter was in response to a letter from other athletes condemning the actions of the government. Now, this letter that Sabalenka allegedly signed was sponsored by the country's Ministry of Sports in support for Lukashenko. Uh, it's all very confusing. Like, it was a translated story. It was a bit difficult to understand. We've stayed out of this a lot because we don't really have, like, a full grasp of what's going on in Belarus and what athletes should be doing. You know, like, what is the right answer? But, I don't know, I feel like... What is safe for them exactly. to be doing? Because when Victoria Azarenka gives a statement that, that is kind of empathetic to Belarusians and what's going on, but also not really taking a political side, that's one thing. I was not going to sit here and criticize Victoria for that because I don't know what family she has in mm -hmm. Belarus, who could potentially be at danger. Like, we've seen what's happened to other prominent athletes in the past before. Specifically, I can talk about Enes Kanter, a Turkish NBA player who's been very outspoken against Erdogan in Turkey. And his, fam his father has been imprisoned for long stretches before. There have been arrest warrants issued for Kanter himself. Like, there are risks involved that we may not know about or be able to fully understand sitting from our kitchen table in Canada, right? Right. But this feels a, just a little bit, just a little bit dismissive from Miss Sabalenko. Mm -hmm. It feels just a little bit bootlicking to me, is what I'm going to yeah. say. I feel like we've gathered enough observations and enough evidence to to sort of make that conclusion. She apparently has gone to several events maskless, defiantly maskless, even after being asked to put one on. The The mask thing was in the same story that uh, kind of explicated her Instagram posts. So uh, if you want to put Sabalenka into the group of problematicals, <laughs> you can do that. I don't know. I, you know. I mean, up until now, her vaccine comments have been the only thing that have been categorically on record as being just not it right 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 and so i i want to acknowledge that we cannot properly judge the trustworthiness of sources in a language that we don't understand you know so like i just want to put out that caveat now we're back to one of your favorite stories the mm -hmm. story that keeps on giving for do you, you do you ever feel like we're running on a treadmill we're pushing up a boulder like sisyphus Diana Yastremska will always make an appearance on the body surf. How is this comparison apt for you? What about this is Sisyphean? Okay, you're right. I do enjoy it. But I, I also feel like we are not really getting anywhere. So this week, Yannick Schneider from Der Spiegel 
posted a story with the headline, Risky Sex. Well, like, talk about it, a headline. As we know, as we talked about last time, or the time before, the chair of the Independent Tribunal denied Yastrzemska's second application for reprieve from this ban. Risky sex. Risky sex. Are you, are you still, I'm still processing that? <laughs> I'm getting there. Is this a call to condoms? Is, that, is this what this a is? Co- <laughs> <laughs> yes, like a call to arms? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, it is pro-safer sex, but it is definitely an inflammatory headline. So as I was saying, Yastrzemska appealed. She appealed a second time. They were both dismissed. So now she's got to go in front of the ITF and hear about uh, the sentencing. She'll have the chance to present a full case this time. But the Court of Arbitration for Sport has ruled, like, no, this hearing has to go forward. We're not dropping the charges. Schneider, in the story, said that Yastrzemska used, well, risky sex, basically, to explain how she tested positive for this steroid called mesterolone. She said that uh, it entered her body through sexual intercourse with an ex-partner. I'm so sorry to the parents listening. Uh, because this feels really gross. Uh, but th- like, these are her words, <laughs> right? Allegedly. Yes. So she said that the partner denies it and is lying about her father forcing him to admit this and put this into the record and provide blood samples. Now, Schneider argues, well, his expert argues that a urine sample is actually the most effective, the most appropriate sample to give for this sort of steroid transmission which apparently was not given so he's sort of casting doubt the experts are casting doubt on the story the telegraph is reporting that yastromska's father was putting pressure on the boyfriend to admit that he was the guilty party and he was the one who had it in his system and passed it along i mean this is getting messier by the second i mean if you care for your career that much then yeah i guess you are going to reveal these things if it's true then you have no choice but to tell the truth. If it's not true, now that is some, that is beyond mess. So this story in Der Spiegel comes out, and very swiftly after, Diana releases a statement on social media and says, You may have seen a recent story in the media about me and my case. I can say categorically that the story is untrue and defamatory. My lawyers will be in touch with the publication in question. I'm confident that once I have the opportunity to present my case and evidence at a full hearing, I will be cleared. Questions arise from the statement. What I want to know is, didn't she already present her case? But I guess she will have the opportunity to present the most full version of her evidence in this next hearing. But who is advising her? Not, like, not every story requires a comment. I would just think you would want to keep your statements to a minimum so as not to interfere with the actual proceedings. <sighs> if you're searching for logic with the situation and Miss Yastrzemska, I think you're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> Fair. It's just, you know, she's facing a pretty draconian ban. Two years is the standard ban, even accidentally taking this stuff. But if it turns out that she was lying about the story, it could be much worse. Listen, she's absolutely within her rights, naturally, obviously, to defend herself. Mm-hmm. But it just has always felt like there was something off about this from the start. Yeah. And it has to do with her, her own behavior. 
Yeah, it tells you like it's been handled completely wrong because she may be completely innocent. I have no idea. But the way that it's been handled makes it look the opposite. And I'm so confused, my head spinning about a lot of things. But <laughs> I had a moment of complete ineptitude this week. Mm-hmm. where Just one. In response to this story, I was like, I wonder if Sasha is going to stick around if anybody else will have him. <laughs> and I was like, um, hello. <laughs> it was a complete brain fart. And then for the life of me, I couldn't even remember who he was currently with. Mm. That was that was my American male tennis player rankings moment <laughs> that you had a couple yeah, weeks yeah, ago. Yeah. Because we've talked about this and him so much on the show, like how obviously I know, you know, mm-hmm. how embarrassing. <laughs> Let's talk about what has been the talk of Twitter over the past 24 hours is Roger Federer's comments on Zverev's parting with teammate. Ben Rothenberg asked him a question in Geneva about what happened You know, why did Zverev leave? Did it have anything to do with the abuse allegations? And the answer Roger gave was surprisingly unprepared. Ben asked Roger about Team 8's affiliation with Zverev and the fact that they've, you know, worked closely in the past before and that there was a split, obviously, last year. And why was that if it had something to do with the allegations made by his ex-girlfriend, Olya Sharapova? And Federer gives this response about how I wasn't really involved in that. But right at the start, he pivots to make sure he says right off the bat that Sasha is a great guy. Now, this is where this response just immediately goes off the rails for me. Because time and time again, how many times have we seen folks being asked about Zverev? And the very first thing, if not one of the first three things they say as a preface is Sasha is a great guy. Why? What is the evidence? And why is that such a uniform thing that these men need to say? Mm -hmm. What you mean to say is, Sasha's a great guy to me in his interactions with me. But how is it that when he's being asked about Sasha's private life, for which he thinks should stay private, by the way, why should then his blanket statement about how great a guy's verve is to him in his interactions with him be applied to what he doesn't know about his private life. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say that he's happy when Sasha does well and that the allegations, they're, quote, super private stuff that I really don't want to comment on. Here is why people are mad, right? Maybe you don't think that Roger Federer should have to comment on this, but Alexander Zverev had a business relationship with Roger Federer. He's taken him across the world on exhibition tours. He's just said that Sasha is a great guy. Why? Why did he say that? He's been groomed as an heir apparent. Right. Like, we talk about the next-gen folks. Nadal and Federer are the great rivalry, right? Team and Zverev were groomed as their children. Right. And when you say that that's private stuff that I I don't want to get into, abuse is not private, right? Abuse is a crime. This is something that some societies have, like, gotten further down the road than others, we are starting to understand that domestic abuse is not something that happens within relationships that we shouldn't talk about. It's actually a crime. It has harm to the public interest, to the public good. 
So it's upsetting when someone would say, well, if he, you know, if he beats up his girlfriend, that's really a private thing I shouldn't talk about. Okay. I'm not saying that he's guilty. We've never once on this show said he's guilty. But we have said that abuse is not a private matter. It's not in the domestic sphere. It's something that we should be able to talk about in public because it harms the public. And when Federer is pressed by Ben Rothenberg saying, what does he think about the ATP not having a, a policy on record, whether you know the ATP should do anything or try to investigate, giving him the example that a lot of other leagues do have that. Federer's like, other leagues have that? And the, the interaction goes back and forth. You know, obviously Ben is talking about majority of those leagues being American professional leagues. And Federer's immediate response is that, well, we are, we're independent contractors. So it doesn't quite really apply. And like the ATP has jurisdiction over, you know, what we do on court. But you want to do the private life as well? Really? Mm -hmm. Really, Ben? You want to do the private life? We're independent contractors. I have such a visceral reaction to the words independent contractors now. It's so infuriating to me because just because you're independent contractors, does that mean that there can be no standards for your behavior? I mean, we already know. We already know that the ATP can regulate off-court behavior if it's detrimental to their brand. It's in the code of conduct. Whether that's legally enforceable, I don't know. But just because you're independent contractors doesn't mean that the ATP can't take a stand, cannot have a coordinated response to a situation where a player is accused of domestic violence. Mm. What, like, that is the, the basic. It took the ATP so long to even respond. And so what we have here is yet another example of the system doing the work it's designed to do. And, exactly. the, pl- and the players, not tennis players here, but the players in that system holding up their end of the bargain, their their social contract, mm-hmm. what they feel obliged to do. Why Federer feels immediately they need to say Sasha's a great guy. That was completely unnecessary. Unprovoked. It's circling the wagons. And all these men have done the same thing. Zverev started this rehabilitation campaign by going on German TV, doing these... Mm-hmm. Doing tabloids. Tabloid fluff pieces about how... How close the Zverev family is. And, I mean, it's... But yeah. then you have that, fine. That's something he he needs to do himself. That's his prerogative. But what he doesn't even have to ask for is the Federers of the world saying he's a great guy. Every last person saying he's a great guy. And then having Tennis TV, Tennis Channel, <laughs> right. promote him. Yeah. Every which way. Like, fine, we'll take a week off here because y'all were too loud on Twitter. But we'll be back mm. next week. And... The ATP won't do anything. They don't have a policy in place to deal with domestic abuse allegations. Folks are saying, well, Sharapova didn't, she didn't press charges. What are they supposed to do? Well, Basilashvili has a court case. And they're not and doing anything they've nothing. <laughs> they've just been out here celebrating his wins this year. Mm-hmm. So every last step of the way, Zverev has had the benefit of a system designed to suppress the voice of the accuser and to protect him. So we don't need anybody else, not Federer, not people with 17 digits in their handle on Twitter, not folks who want to avoid taking a look at their own complicity in why we are here in this in this in this place. 
We don't need any of that additional defense for Zver because he's got every resource at his disposal, even if he doesn't ask for it, because that is the system. I, what I sort of gathered from this is that it was surprising how unprepared he was for this question. This has been going on for many months now. Roger had to assume that he would be asked this question at some point. Mm. And if you, you know, you speak for two paragraphs and then you say, I don't want to comment on it. Well, babes, you've already commented over the past 60 seconds. <laughs> you should have just said, I don't want to comment on it, period. It's not just a top professional athlete being asked, well, what do you think about what's going on with that person? As you said, Federer had a pretty unique, somewhat intimate, relative to other tennis players, working relationship. Right. Like they may not have been friends, but there was a business relationship there. On many layers. Uh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> like... I just, I think we, as, as people get older, people tend to like be less and less outraged by things because caring about things is not easy. Right, caring about things takes a lot of emotional labor, but we should expect more. We can and we should expect more from it's, someone like it Roger. Is a, it is a tenet of the show. We've been saying this since 2015. Always expect more from men. There's nothing wrong with that. Right, and I should say, don't expect your fave to do any better than this. <laughs> right, like this is not a fandom thing. This is not a Stan War thing. Our faves would probably answer this question just as poorly. Uh, unless your favorite is Annie Murray, of course, because he's already answered it. He but, didn't answer it great, but, <laughs> to my mind. He answered it decently. Yeah, it was better. It was better, mm -hmm. but it wasn't, like, amazing sweet. Right. But even Novak Djokovic conceded, yeah, we should have a domestic yes, violence yes, policy. Yes, yes, like, yes. Like, the this thing is, what I like, don't understand. As a player, you are not a lawyer, right? You can actually say, I think the ATP should do this. Nobody is going to put you in jail if it's not legally enforceable. You've just shared your opinion. To show how bad this statement was, let's conjure our own statement about what Federer should have said. It it really is that simple. Given what he wanted to achieve in his mm. response, right? Federer could have simply said, I'm aware of what happened with Zverev, what he's been accused of. I think that domestic there's no place for domestic violence anywhere. It's completely unacceptable. That said, I do not know if this is the case, if this has happened. To my knowledge, the split with Team 8 had nothing to do with that. Those are decisions made on a different level. I'm not typically consulted. You'd have to speak to Tony Godzik. And then when the follow-up comes and says, well, what do you think about the ATP's response and them not having a policy in place? Rather than say, oh, other leagues have that? You say, well, you know, yeah, I mean... If this is something that has happened, it's obviously detrimental to the game and the brand of the ATP, and it's not something that we tolerate. So the ATP, you know, maybe should look into that. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to say, yes, the ATP should do that. Right. You say, you know, maybe that's something for the ATP to look into. It's so simple. Like, what is he afraid of getting fired? I mean, he's Roger Federer. The other thing we learned from this interaction with Roger, because Ben then went and transcribed the question and answer, and he had a few follow-up tweets saying that he's still hoping to find a home for part two of the Olya Sharapova story, which was a little bit surprising to us, but also it's a good follow-up for us here now based on what we said on our previous episode. Yeah, so we mentioned that there was a part two and we haven't seen it and we didn't know why, and it turns out that it looks like Racket will not be publishing part two, that... 
they uh, were confronted by some Zverev lawyers. On Twitter, Ben said explicitly that Zverev's lawyers have been on the offense trying to prevent this part two coming out. And the fact that it hasn't come out yet. Racket being the publisher of the first article, and now he's saying he's looking for a home for it, lets us know and believe that Racket is not going to be publishing the second part. Yeah, so it's understandable why other outlets would be hesitant to pick this up because of the (laughs) risk-reward here. Uh, If they're also being intimidated by this legal team, it may not be worth the risk. Other people were suggesting, well, why don't you just put it out there? Self-publishing a story like this leaves you personally at risk for being sued for defamation. And I've seen a lot of folks say, well, they don't have any grounds to stand on. How are they going to, how is that going to hold up in court? Maybe so. That's immaterial because whoever publishes it has to potentially deal with months or years of being caught up in court cases, having to pay legal fees only for it to just not pan out to anything. My point here is that when folks say, well, that won't hold up in a court of law, that's immaterial. Just the mere threat of a lawsuit is not nothing, (laughs) you know? Mm. It requires a lot to defend yourself, even if you are 100% in the right. Uh, New music is dropping. New music dropped last night. I knew that Chapo was going to come out with a new song. I didn't know he was releasing an EP. It's a seven-minute EP. Three songs. Three songs. Seven minutes. (laughs) Okay. Okay, fine. It is available on Spotify. It uh, his his artist name is Chapo. Yes, yes. Uh, he is also on YouTube. I think at Chapo Music. Bottom line is the drip train is back. It is the uh, the sound is very similar. The beats are very similar. It's not it's not the Toronto sound, right? You know the Toronto sound. It's the that really dystopian weekend sort of industrial sound Mm. this is uh you know he has an aesthetic it's kind of like marvin gaye's what's going on album where the tracks feel that they bleed into (laughs) it i can't even say with a straight face (laughs) you are fired i'm kidding i'm just kidding but the songs do sort of bleed into each other uh we were at the vet last night this is what our third trip to the vet with Vince. Oh, in the Lord. Last he is feeling better now. I I don't think we said that earlier. Yeah. He's on the men, so uh, so he's inside doing his thing, and actually was able to take a picture. Once they receive him, we can't go in. He has been walked to the back, and he he stops for a little poop on the yep. floor. And I I apologize, and she's like, "For what?" She's <laughs> like, "We got a fresh sample. It was great." It's <laughs> like, okay, I guess you're used to this. <laughs> so. We're, you know, killing time in the car at like 10.03 because it, it, it dropped at 10 p.m. our time last night. Mm-hmm. And we're listening to it and then the vet calls. Yes, because <laughs> this I, is COVID, right? So we're not allowed to go in. And we, for some reason, I couldn't turn off the Spotify on my like, phone. Get out, get out. So I had to get out of the car. <laughs> Anything for Chapo. I decided I'm not going to make fun of this guy because this is something that he loves to do. He's putting in effort. And how dare I mock something that he cares about? Right. But don't you want to see progression? Like yes. getting better at something? Uh-huh. Yeah. This was not that. All right. All right. I, I said I wasn't going to say anything bad, so I won't. I mean, obviously, if he enjoys it, keep doing it, girl. Yeah. I mean, you're giving us segments. 
mm -hmm. get to have a, a laugh or two. We haven't done a deep dive on the lyrics, but um, this whole bit about me yeah. and my boys repping in Nike. You're like, who, Felix? Yeah. Money so high that Felix got to climb it. The corniness of the lyrics, coupled with MFers, interspersed with MFers. You were the one who said, you've got better flow than Shabo. Mm -hmm. I do. That you are very confident about I'm this. not going to demonstrate it here. You haven't given me but evidence you might, of But you that. might be surprised. I don't even know if that's true. No, I've done it at karaoke before. I don't recall. Well, uh, Maybe you did it in, in college when I was there. That's not my fault. I um, I'm going to investigate this. I'm going to find mm. out if this is actually true. Ms. Onika Mirage released a mixtape this week, and dare I say, Shapo just eclipsed her. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you are such a messy, messy bitch. <laughs> We're going to move on finally. We're at the end to things we like, dislike. I believe you, I've been tipped off that you have a dislike that's about me. Yeah, and then you were like, well, I just don't make it too personal. Mm. You can decide. You're going to be editing this part of the episode. So you, if oh. it makes it, it makes it. <laughs> I dislike your complete ineptitude when it comes to having culinary instincts. Are you serious? <laughs> like you do the... You do Wait, the, you're telling me that you want me to cook all the time. But no, I'm saying you do the best with what you've got. And you're a fantastic sous chef. Mm -hmm. Like you take direction very well. Ask too many questions, but you take direction yeah. very well. But when I decide to make a lasagna for the first time in my life, as like a treat for you, because, mm -hmm. you know, you're Italian and you're kind of bored with all the same kind of rotating meals I've been cooking in quarantine, you almost ruin it because your instinct is to tell me to do the wrong thing with the top layer of the lasagna. Even though me, a Jamaican, having never cooked lasagna, have never really eaten it that much, <laughs> was like, mm -hmm. well, I don't think that really works. Mm -hmm. I think you need like like some sauce and cheese on top of that. You you were so adamant about it. <laughs> and so when it came out wrong, and we had to peel off that top layer... Mm -hmm. And it was wrong. You were like, well, I, didn't, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, listen... You have never been more forceful about anything in the kitchen before. You are like, <laughs> this is how it needs to be done. Okay, drag me. And then when I told you about how I cooked for Vince at four in the morning, his chicken and rice. This one, I can't even say I dislike oh, no, this it. I like funny. this, this one. Funny. I like this one. You're like, so how did you cook the chicken? Did you fry it in water? <laughs> and you know what I meant. <laughs> And it was like, oh, boiled. I guess. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was like, oh, I, was I like, guess that's what boiling the, is. The enormity of this stupidity <laughs> didn't quite hit me. I actually responded to you in earnest. I said, um, no, I boiled it in water. And then you were like, oh, I guess boiling in water is the same as frying in water. <laughs> and I actually had to, I had to pause the show we were watching because I was screaming. <laughs> Um, wow. You really... I yeah. mean, I will say that I tried carbonara for the first time. I'm making it last week, and it was a fucking disaster. It was terrible. I didn't hate it. You didn't hate it, but I did. Uh, so I'm never going to make it again. <laughs> and there are some things that I'm good at. Listen, the lasagna came out well. It did, Notwithstanding. Yeah. Yeah, it tasted yeah. real good. You're still having seconds. And I made a brisket for the first time last night. A yeah. pot roast. Fabulous. 
Fabulous. I could not have been more pleased. Mm-hmm. It finished its last hour of cooking while we were at the vet. <laughs> yeah, that was the only good thing that happened yesterday. So since you dislike me so much, I'll, I'll finish <laughs> with a thing we like. The new show Z-Way, mm-hmm. which is hosted by Z-Way. I wasn't familiar with her until I saw the trailer for her show. I guess she was on Jesus and Marrow before, and she's known uh, on social media for doing these incredibly confrontational interviews, but they're funny. Like, they're tongue-in-cheek. So she'll ask leading questions to famous people and then reframe their answers in the most uncharitable way possible. But it's all funny, right? Like, people are in on the joke. And uh, Fran Lebowitz was her first guest. That show is so funny. And it's so different from any other kind of comedic show on TV. Mm. There's so many, uh, I guess, like commentary or sketch comedy shows that I find really cringe that I just find are trying too hard. This is not that. And even some of the best ones, the Black Lady sketch show, have some serious bombs. Uh, No, I'm done with that show. Like a few of these episodes were unwatchable. Well, I'm saying comedy... Well, it's unwatchable in, in spots. In comedy, there are a lot of misses. That's what if, I'm even saying. Even on the good shows. Yeah. yeah. At least black people get to have these misses now. Right. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> because this is a long-standing disagreement with us in terms of comedy shows. When you present a show to me and you're like, well, oh, it's a comedy. I'm like, well, is it like a Parks and Rec comedy? Is it like, like, oh, is it like that white people? Is it like Parks white people sketch kind of comedy? Which I... <laughs> I mean, one of my first introductions to comedy in North America, being at Ithaca College in 2003, was a bunch of white people thinking they were going to be the cast next on Saturday Night Live. And existing in that space was traumatic. Because y'all just ain't that funny. It was traumatic. I feel that's a bit dramatic. Y'all just ain't that funny. You may hit 2 out of 10. That's not a good bad... That's not a good ratio. It's just not. (laughs) And so, something I like is... You told me about this show. We should watch this new Gene Smart show. It's a comedy. And of course, my immediate reaction was like, here he goes. Oh, yeah. Suggesting don't, don't another trust comedy. my opinion in comedies. This shit is amazing. Love it. Yeah. Gene Smart out here at 69 years young, killing it. It's called Hacks. It's on HBO Max. She gets another lead role, which she's gotten more and more of as she's gotten older. We watched the first episode of Run the World. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'll come back yeah. for episode two. And we're watching... Gene Smart on Mayor of Easttown as well. Which is actually very good. And I was it's prepared to good. hate it because Kate Winslet is still in the doghouse for the Woody Allen stuff. But she, I mean, she's really good on it. The last episode notwithstanding where something really shocking happened. Oh my lord. What I will say about this show is, why haven't we had more American crime dramas like this? Mm-hmm. Like Why does like it Broad have Church? to be like the SVU kind of feel? Why does it have to be the Big Little Lies kind of feel where it has to be uber glamorous for it to be interesting? Where we have to see Mm. super rich people for it to be captivating? (laughs) I feel like we haven't had this kind of crime drama aesthetic prestige show the way we've had the like any number of British UK variants. Yeah, true crime or crime drama is very difficult because it can be very exploitative for survivors or victims of crime. Um, it can glamorize the police. Which is where the, the U.S. productions typically yeah, veer. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that was a, a bit of a haphazard 
things we dislike like. I'm gonna finish this episode and then maybe go fry some chicken in water. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. At The Body Serve on Twitter, Instagram. TheBodyServe at gmail.com. If you uh, want to email, yeah, you can get in touch with us that way. We'll be back for our French Open preview episode once the draw has been made. Mm-hmm. So sometime next weekend. Yeah, so probably like in 10 days. Yeah, 9, 10 days. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.